This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarupu, the host of this channel. In this episode, I, along with my wonderful co-host, Garima Jaju, have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Sanjeev Rautre, author of the brand new book, The Right to be Counted, Urban Poor and the Politics of Resettlement in Delhi. This book was published by Stanford University Press in 2022. In this book, Dr. Rautre examines how Delhi's urban poor, in an effort to gain visibility from the local state, incrementally stake their claims to a house and life in the city. Dr. Sanjeev Rautre is an assistant professor in the Institute of Asian Studies, University Brunei, Dar es Salaam. He is a sociologist, anthropologist, critical urbanist, and migration specialist of South Asia and beyond. His areas of expertise include urban poverty, political and legal mobilizations, trans-regional migration, and caste and labor market negotiations. Hello, Sanjeev. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Uh, Garima and I are really excited that uh, we could make this conversation happen, and we both uh, loved reading Right to be Counted. So congratulations, first of all, on the book. And um, yeah, just I hope I hope you're celebrating. <laughs> So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you. So we thought we'd start out with uh, getting to know you, the author of this wonderful book, a little bit better. Um, how did you become an anthropologist and uh, what drew you to anthropology in particular? Um, well, well, I'm not uh, sort of uh, an anthropologist or sociologist uh-huh. Uh, a long time. I, I took it up after my sciences. So in a sense, I'm an accidental sociologist or anthropologist. <laughs> right. and it is a long story, but let me briefly explain and give you the context uh-huh. to how I became a sociologist or anthropologist. Um, when I was growing up, my primary aim was to escape our village and become a respectable within course, middle class person. Mm-hmm. And education for us was less to do with an intellectual pursuit and more of a means to achieve uh, upward mobility to become middle class and to be able to live the lifestyle of the middle class. And to play with Karl Marx's words, the Nehruvian commodities and uh, modernity didn't quite batter down the paddy fields surrounding mm-hmm. my village during my mm-hmm. childhood. So in a sense, my childhood was filled uh, with uh, a lot of anxiety and utmost anxiety. My my grandfather would always talk about the upward mobility of uh, some upper caste families in an adjacent village. I belong to the Tosa caste, uh, an intermediate caste, which is uh, designated as a socially and educationally backward caste. But it is also, uh, you know, as an, uh, an oppressor caste when it comes to other oppressed castes, especially right. Dalit caste. Uh, 
my father, who was a diploma in metallurgy, struggled to get a job in the first uh, 10 or 12 years of his life. So, and he was mostly unemployed. And then he got a job in the in a, in a public sector unit, National Aluminium Company or, NAL, or NALCO, when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old. This, this in a sense, kind of uh, changed our lives. Around the same time, I was sent to a government-run English medium boarding school. Uh, nevertheless, I continued to experience symbolic violence. I, I stayed with my parents in Nalco Township during vacations. The non-executives in the township lived in smaller A or B type quarters, and the executives lived in bigger C or D type uh, C or D type quarters. And our children of non-executives, we went to the community center to play and relax. And the executives went to the officers club, which had better provisions. Mm -hmm. Of course, the so-called non-executives are not a homogeneous category. Uh, my family also had some privileges that other families did not have. Mm -hmm. So uh, my primary objective those days was to experience upward mobility, right? Mm -hmm. and, and get into the other side of the social world. I, I studied geology, botany, chemistry for my undergrad, but I was getting interested in social sciences. After my undergrad degree uh, in, in sciences, I switched to sociology and anthropology mm -hmm. uh, with a tentative aim to prepare for civil services exam. Mm -hmm. But then I really got interested in sociology because it kind of offered me a vocabulary to make sense of my own life and the world around. Mm -hmm. I became passionately involved in thinking um, about my own relative privileges or the lack of them. Mm -hmm. I got interested in thinking about how caste, class, gender dynamics, rural, urban, binaries, English language education, especially in elite schools mm -hmm. versus vernacular medium education shaped our lives. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, I was becoming increasingly politicized and changing as a person and recrafting my future goals. So, so uh, when I was doing my master's in sociology, I decided to be an anthropologist or sociologist. So, so that is the story about how, you know, I became a sociologist or anthropologist. It was, it was very, very accidental. Yes, thank you, Sanjeev. That was a very sort of rich description of, uh, you know, the sort of social worlds from which we come into disciplines. Um, if we now move to the book, what is the story of the book and how did that sort of grow in your mind? And also, I mean, how did it come out of your social context, your politics? Um, how did the idea come to you and how did you go around, um, go about designing the research for this book? Right. Okay, so uh, around the time when I started working on this project in the early 2000s, a lot of interesting academic articles on Delhi started coming out. Um, I learned quite a great deal from this. I was also uh, getting involved in 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 uh, um, anti-displacement uh, sort of writing because I was writing my MPhil around this time, uh, and most of this literature focused on the process of process of disposition and displacements of the poor. I also did the same, and later on, I in increasingly became interested in understanding the consciousness and agency of the poor especially in their pursuit of a home in the city. Um, as you know, most of the poor in Delhi are migrants from various parts of India. So the story of the book is uh, uh, about how do these poor migrants incrementally gain a range of citizenship entitlements in the city. And I argue that the primary struggle of the poor is to be recognized uh, and to be uh, identified by the state to secure housing, rudimentary infrastructure, and a, and a range of basic services in the city. Uh, and through the idea of numerical citizenship, which is which is a central idea, uh, as you know, in the book, um, I explained that the poor assert their numerical strength, as well as deploy a panoply of tactics and counter tactics uh, to be visible to the local state 
in their pursuit of citizenship rights. In fact, I developed some of these ideas uh, during my first field, uh, uh, first round of fieldwork, when I realized about the extent of uh, under enumerations and um, uh, how easily the state deemed a significant poor population ineligible for various welfare entitlements. Uh, I realized that the primary challenge of the poor is to document their numerical presence in the city. Uh, they must provide proof of their presence from a particular date. And in, in my book, I show how the poor through various documentary and inscriptive tactics document their presence, how they invoke memory of their neighbors and kins, and how they auto-archive their stories to establish claims of authentic presence. I also show how they uh, reclassify and recategorize themselves as regular or legal when the state renders them as uh, encroachers, illegal or transitory. And I argue that they build a host of relationships, forge kinship ties and collective solidarity and develop uh, alliances with activists, politicians um, and interlocutors across the social and political spectrum to gain a foothold in the city. So um, in a nutshell, the book delineates the exclusionary uh, and arbitrary basis of state calculations and how the poor must uh, fight tooth and nail to make a home and obtain citizenship entitlements in the city. I hope I answered your question. And thanks, Anjeev. That's a really uh, a very potent summary of the book and sort of conveys the core of the book very well. Yeah. Yeah, and it really got me curious to know more about how you went about doing research for this book, because this book is such a multi-sided ethnography, and um, I'm sure our listeners would love to know more about how you went about making contacts and accessing these sites and spaces. All right. Um, as I just said now, uh, my aim is to understand the agency and struggles of the poor in the extent of, uh, uh, or rather in the context of uh, urban displacements. Uh, and dispositions in this book. Mm -hmm. So the first aim was to select the social spaces for study that uh, uh, offered me an analytical anchor to understand the processes of settlement, displacement, and resettlement. Mm -hmm. As it is clearly obvious, these specific uh, spatial settings enable or constrain the politics of the poor in distinctive ways in Delhi. So I chose a Jogi Jogli settlement, a transit camp, and a resettlement colony for my study. Uh, Jogi Jopdis, as you know, are comprised of hutments made up of a variety of materials. Mm -hmm. The Jogi Jopdi settlement where I conducted research was demolished just before I started my fieldwork. So uh, the case study of this neighborhood provided me an opportunity uh, to understand the politics of uh, building a Jogi, getting recognition from the state to receive services, claiming uh, resettlement upon demolition, and to understand post-demolition hardships. The transit camp um, adjoins a middle-class colony, mm -hmm. and the residents of the middle class fought a court battle to demolish the transit camp. Through this case study, my purpose was to examine the vexatious relationship and the spatial practices of the poor and the middle class in Delhi. Uh, for this goal, I analyzed the court battles and protests to fight demolition and obtain basic amenities in this uh, neighborhood over a longer temporal frame. Finally, I chose a resettlement colony, which was built to accommodate displaced eligible poor from various parts of the city. This case study illustrates my analysis of how the poor coped and incrementally received basic services in the neighborhood. Through this case study, I could develop my argument 
about how the poor leverage their numerical strength or how they uh, deployed their demo demographic calculus as a tactic to bargain for a post of entitlements in an abandoned uh, space in the city. Of course, um, I don't treat these social spaces as stable or survey categories. Rather, I show how these social spaces embody a range of social relations at various historical conjunctures. In other words, I show how these social spaces transform and how they shape relations of production and social reproduction and the politics of the poor in distinct ways. These ideas are not clearly formulated when I started doing my fieldwork. <laughs> uh, a long time ago, I was introduced to various activists and residents of low-income neighborhoods by somebody called Lalit Batra, mm -hmm. um, an activist and uh, intellectual when I, was, uh, when I was a student in Jawaharlal Nehru University. Mm -hmm. So I was a bit familiar with the landscape of Delhi. Uh, and when I started my fieldwork for this project, I interacted quite a bit with my dear friend, Ranjana Padi. Mm -hmm. Ranjana is a feminist activist who was very much involved in uh, uh, anti-displacement struggles around the same time when I embarked on my fieldwork in Delhi. Mm -hmm. And uh, she introduced me to Birju Nai, who grew up in a uh, Jogi Jopri neighborhood, mm -hmm. which uh, uh, turned out to be one of the adjacent neighborhoods of my field sites. Birju, uh, a fellow Odia, <laughs> is uh, affiliated with a major political organization in the city. And he introduced me to a host of neighborhoods and taught me about the dynamics in each neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So finally, with his help, I, I uh, zeroed in on the three field sites for my project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much. That's uh, uh, again like a journey through uh, Delhi, actually, <laughs> and uh, getting to trace the pathways you took is, is makes the book even more exciting to, to revisit for me. Thank you. Can we speak a little about this category of the urban poor that is at the very heart of this book? Um, um, and uh, you go some lengths to sort of analytically flesh it out. Um, so maybe we can hear from you what the, uh, the category of the urban poor means to you and how it is that you approach the study of the politics of the poor. Right. Yeah, this is, this is a very important question. Uh, of course, I do not treat the category of urban poor as homogeneous. Um, I actually drawn Nandini Guptu to argue that the urban poor do not represent a distinct social class and do not engage in any distinct set of production relations. Uh, so I think the category of urban poor uh, encompasses or encompasses various occupational groups who uh, engage in several kinds of employment relations. And when I was conceptualizing uh, um, this category, uh, um, I, I was very much aware that uh, the urban poor are also divided along the lines of caste, religion, income, um, gender, and, and regional origin. I touch on these social differentiations to um, analyze how they shape the struggles of the poor. In fact, the social cleavages uh, shape the politics to procure proof documents, appropriate scarce resources, obtain suitable plots or build uh, additional floors, and to carry out businesses in the neighborhood. For example, uh, I show how Dalits, who are most often the poorest of the poor, lose out in many ways in, in uh, obtaining their entitlements because they lack the social connections and, and time to navigate the bureaucracy. And also how they deploy uh, distinctive politics in negotiating the Pradhans or chiefs and activists uh, belonging to their own communities. Some uh, uh, residents flaunt their caste identities 
and a foot along caste lines, which highlights the heterogeneity of the urban poor. Similarly, I've shown that the purchasers of uh, resettlement plots or the buyers or purchasers of resettlement plots or flats have an advantage uh, to procure uh, scarce resources, um, could be water or electricity, right? If you compare them with the original allotties due to their relative economic power and social connections. But the buyers and purchasers are also precariously placed because their self-purchase affidavits may not be treated as uh, valid or legitimate documents by the state. Um, to give you another example, I, I realized that women experienced uh, unequal uh, vulnerabilities in resettlement colonies, especially because it curtailed their mobility and employment opportunities. In, in addition to all these commonly understood forms of divisions, I also realized that other factors shape the vulnerabilities of the poor. For example, the illegal or quasi-legal nature of their neighborhoods uh, shaped their precarity and also determined their distinct politics. Um, as I argue in the book, the politics of the poor in a Jugi neighborhood is markedly uh, different from the politics of the poor in a resettlement neighborhood, right? Um, similarly, the vulnerability uh, vulnerability of the poor is defined by the position of legible, uh, legible proof documents, which in turn defines the nature and content of politics in any particular neighborhood. So the struggle is uneven when the poor attempt to produce legible documents or and authenticate legitimate uh, presence in the city. Most importantly, I show how at this uh, current conjuncture, Muslims experience increasing Islamophobia and have a specific kind of vulnerability as then struggle to produce valid documents and legacy data to procure state welfare services. Uh, despite these divisions, I argue that the residents constantly uh, forge vaichara or brotherhood and ristadari or relationships in their shared stigmatized localities to bargain for their entitlements. Although uh, this collective solidarity is often contingent and tenuous. I've drawn a bit of my inspiration from uh, Ranajit Gua to study the politics or tactics of the poor on their own terms. Of course, I show how these uh, tactics are constrained by social divisions reflect uh, ambiguities and contradictions, and how they intersect with activists, uh, interlocutors, and allies. But I also emphasize that these uh, uh, tactics are often open-ended dialogical acts and require appraisal of multiple possible uh, routes of struggles. So uh, despite divisions, I, I foreground the idea that the poor negotiate with various interlocutors based on their experiential knowledge, calculations, and affective, uh, affective equations. So, um, so I had some trouble conceptualizing this category of urban poor, and I had to sort of constantly return back to the divisions and differentiations and how uh, the, uh, their politics, uh, you know, uh, was shaped by these divisions and uh, um, uh, differentiations. Thanks, Sanjeev. I mean, one of the great things about this book is how much care um, you take to add specificity to the debate and you know you're always you know you're very cautious of never falling into these kind of homogenous um, categories and um, that really makes the book very very sophisticated and complex so that's really wonderful and thanks for um, um, summarizing that for us um, another very sort of potent tension that is very alive and palpable in the book is this dualism um, that is a tension between the biopolitical control of the poor by the state using numbers, surveys and metrics and the radical politics of numerical 
on numerical citizenship as practiced by the poor themselves. So this is a tension between being seen and seeing, you know, borrowing from Scott. Um, there is also a slight departure from Asha Gartner's argument around aesthetic logics that underpin urban planning and urban politics in Delhi. Um, could you say a little bit more about how you conceptualize this form of governmentality in Delhi and India more broadly, and how this shapes the political terrain of urban poor to claim their rights to the city? All right. Okay. Um, I, I absolutely admire uh, Asha Gartner's work. Um, nevertheless, I think his focus on the logics of aesthetic rationality, uh, shaping urban space and the politics of the poor addresses only one aspect of contemporary Delhi. So that's how I, I begin to uh, engage with his work. Um, I think state calculations and, and regulations shape the uh, space of politics in a significant manner in Delhi. To understand this aspect, I have deployed a conjunctural uh, analysis to highlight the various contradictions which have uh, shaped rationalities underpinning urban planning regimes and uh, state governmentality in various periods in Delhi. I show the shifts from a reformist agenda to redistribute urban resources, uh, even if minimally, uh, to an obsession with neoliberal rationality and capital accumulation. And in the present conjuncture, uh, the planning protocols are tied up with the ideas of world-class city, aesthetics and slum-free city, building a distinct uh, city personality, etc. Right. So, um, as I saw, uh, as I show in the book, these ideas have given rise to particular calculations and regulations, including uh, monitoring and surveillance of the poor, satellite mapping and espionage tactics to assess the extent of uh, encroachments and consequent displacement and resettlement. I, I also illustrate how different political regimes uh, showed up distinct forms of calculations, dispositions, and ameliorations. To emphasize uh, these points, I, I must add that the Delhi Urban Shelter Improvement Board uh, was established in 2010 primarily to undertake the calculative tasks of surveys, enumeration, uh, and eligibility determination. And unlike James Scott, um, um, I argue that the poor actively engage the OPEC state and do not flee from it, right? So, uh, so my primary goal is to uh, show the citizenship projects of the poor as they encounter the calculative machinery, uh, uh, you know, not just the aesthetic uh, machinery or rationality, but also the calculative machinery and governmentality of the state. And, and in this sense, I think uh, the book contributes to a theory of citizenship uh, a deeply situated analysis of urban citizenship. And I show how contingent and contextual these citizenship struggles are in Delhi. I'm not suggesting an inescapable uh, trajectory of the poor in trying to gain recognition of the state in the attempt to uh, claim citizenship rights. Rather, I show all through the book, I, I show that this process is fraught and not homogeneous and unilinear. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Yeah, and I think that comes through really uh, clearly also in the concept of Raniti that is so key to the way you're conceptualizing uh, urban politics in Delhi. And the way you use Raniti is very evocative of the struggles of the poor to claim rights in the city, um, however insecure and tenuous, right? Um, what is conveyed very well in the book is the relentless nature of the struggle. So settling, displacement, resettling, and so on and so forth. Um, can I ask you to speak more about the improvised patchwork of tactics and, uh, and counter tactics through which the poor are constantly attempting and, you know, failing, succeeding, failing, succeeding to secure their place in the urban landscape? So how do you uh, imagine Raniti conceptually and what does it bring to the table and afford us in our analyses of uh, urban politics right now? Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so as I put it in the book, uh, the Ranitis or tactics or counter tactics are are, are complex and uh, and uh, and are, are labyrinthine mazes, right? The, the labyrinthine mazes of tactics and counter tactics, and I'm trying to document a whole range of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I show how statecraft is marked by absurd and exclusionary technologies, and how the poor struggle to be counted to obtain a panoply of citizenship rights. And as, I, as you said, this is the tension I'm dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. So um, while the assertion of numerical strength is a significant tactic uh, for exercising agency, I systematically examine how the struggles entail other tactics and counter tactics. Mm -hmm. So I show how the poor actively engage in locality building in the face of surveillance and monitoring on the part of state agencies. I've emphasized uh, uh, you know, that the poor strategically deploy their numbers to actively build community and, and forge um, collective solidarity. Right. I've, I've shown that the state enumeration practices are marked by arbitrary classifications of eligibility and ineligibility and how these practices lead to state conditions and experiences of humiliation and symbolic violence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these practices, uh, you know, uh, amplify orthographic anxieties, uh, mm -hmm. say for instance, concerning documentary errors, and, and they give rise to protracted periods of waiting. Mm -hmm. So uh, in response, I've listed the counter tactics of enumeration. Does the poor often uh, reference letters and repeatedly visit offices to procure documents to fix uh, errors or commies in their mm -hmm. documents. They utilize self-service to challenge uh, the deflated state numbers or enumeration data and details. Mm -hmm. And if the state agencies differ in issuing documents, the poor take uh, recourse to the right to information policy of the state in a dogged manner to challenge the politics of deferral mm -hmm. and the dilatory politics uh, or tactics of the state. I, I must um, emphasize that the errors in the documents uh, relate mostly uh, to spelling anomalies and overwriting. And as bearers of these documents, the poor attempt to authenticate their legitimate presence mm -hmm. by calling upon their neighbors, uh, kins, and local politicians to validate and endorse this uh, uh, and endorse their claim. So that's why I always keep on talking about collective solidarity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I have illustrated how these processes of authentication get tied up with memory, affective uh, relations, and community sentiments. Mm -hmm. And at times, uh, um, the the poor forge and produce counterfeit documents uh, to challenge the state practices. Of course, uh, this act of producing counterfeits may lead to various kinds of uh, misappropriation. And, and I'm aware of that. And, and I've also discussed about it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah. Should I tell you about law? Because I also talk about law and... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Okay. So, um, so 
So I talked about uh, locality building and uh, documentary struggles, but I also show how law becomes an important uh, important site of numerical citizenship struggles. Um, um, the poor contest for legal designations, such as uh, encroachers, ineligible uh, non-petitioners, or transit uh, or transitory, these are categories the state has. And so they reclassify and re rename themselves in courtrooms, uh, street corners and various events to contest uh, state classifications, um, which uh, convey their lack of numerical entrenchment in the city. Mm -hmm. in, so, in so doing, they put pressure or dabab, um, contest uh, road measurements, and challenge the de deflected numbers of state immigration records. Uh, you know, I just uh, told about this. Uh, thus, I demonstrate how the poor negotiate the law not just in the courts, uh, but uh, servered legal rulings by demonstrating on rooftops, um, around walls and uh, boundaries, and by staging road blockades. Uh, and in this slide, I've listed several resistant tactics and performances, which include uh, various uh, celebratory ceremonies, uh, as well as spectacles. Mm -hmm. And thanks, Sanjeev. Uh, and as you sort of, you know, map this very complex landscape, what you also do very well is identify and locate this whole range of intermediaries and middlemen. And there is sort of, you know, very varied and colorful practices and politics. Uh, what you, you know, to reveal what you call, um, quote, the peculiarity of patronage politics in the city. Um, could you speak a little bit more about this sort of cast of characters and what their politics is and how you met them in field work, what your you know field experience working with them was, um, but also how um, gender, class, caste, kin and religion then shapes this kind of brokered politics um, um, in the city? Right. Thanks. Um, yes, uh, the intermediaries originating from low income neighborhoods uh, uh, become central actors. Uh, in mediating among the poor uh, state agencies and other actors in Delhi, um, especially when the institutionalized avenues to realize uh, substantive citizenship uh, remain uh, uh, circumscribed, right? And most often I met the intermediary, intermediaries even before I met uh, the residents of their neighborhoods. So I was introduced to the intermediaries uh, uh, to start with, and then slowly I, I developed uh, rapport and uh, uh, relationships with the variety of other leaders and residents, right? So the intermediaries carry out a range of activities. Uh, they help residents to subsist, assist them in um, production and social reproduction work, and support them in procuring group documents and obtaining uh, many uh, basic services in the city. Uh, my primary task was not to group the intermediaries as a homogeneous category because I was very sure that uh, they do not constitute a homogeneous category uh, as their sources of their uh, legitimacy and motivation are often uh, varied. So um, so I, I, I uh, in a sense, I identified three different kinds of intermediaries uh, in my fieldwork sites, uh, Pradhans or chiefs, Samaj Sevaks or social workers and Sarkari, and Sarkari Karmacharis or government workers. Uh, of course, the tactics of the intermediaries uh, uh, overlap, but I trace their sources of legitimacy and uh, motivation to sharpen my arguments about the nature of the work and the intensity of their involvement at different points of time. Uh, and I've em emphasized that the work of chiefs and social workers is much more pronounced uh, than that of uh, government workers. Pradhans or chiefs are uh, known for their political capital and connections with politicians. The Pradhans in each neighborhood uh, are connected to the main uh, political parties in the city. 
often the upper caste pradhans uh, look down upon dalit pradhans especially if the latter are poor and usually dalits and muslims approach pradhans belonging to their own communities uh, i also found out that the residents seek support from pradhans originating from their own state or home state uh, the pradhans often work as petty contractors or own sundry uh, small businesses in the neighborhood the main tactic is to demonstrate numerical strength and to canvass for uh, votes during elections in exchange for money and uh, other benefits some civics are mostly upper caste mediators and fixers who uh, possess relatively more cultural capital they most often have uh, high school education own small businesses work for ngos or in the lower ranks of the service sector of the labor market in the city uh, they carry out what they call as public killings by negotiating with activists politicians bureaucrats and other influential people their level of uh, their level of literacy uh, puts them in an advantageous position to mediate with uh, respect to various issues especially if they are required to uh, interpret documents rules and regulations so um, clearly they do not have the symbolic weight and political connections that the pradhans have but they fashion themselves as distinct from pradhans or chiefs as the activities of the pradhans may entail uh, negative connotations as i often uh, found out uh, finally the sarkari karmacharis or government workers uh, derive their legitimacy from the connections they possess among government staff and officers they advise the residents whom to approach and uh, what to do when the residents are dealing with uh, state with the state agencies so they have significantly more um, what i argue bureaucratic social capital than pradhans and samajsevaks i must emphasize uh, that i came across many articulate female uh, female chiefs or pradhans but i did not find many female government workers and uh, rarely crossed paths with female social workers often male pradhans or chiefs disparage the work of female pradhans and argue that they carry out uh, development related work while the female pradhans merely uh, carry out gharelu samasya ki work or uh, work related to domestic problems uh, sometimes the residents engage in character assassination of female pradhans even after receiving a considerable amount of support and help from them so um, my primary argument is that the intermediaries do not constitute a monolithic group uh, they are differentiated in terms of their identities in terms of their political allegiances and in the manner of their tactics to uh, mediate between the residents and various constituencies i also argue that although the intermediaries carry out important uh, work they also foster dependencies and various kinds of exclusions uh, i'll stop there yeah no that was i think um, also very indicative of the kind of care and um, attention careful attention that you paid to uh, the level the texture of your field right and to really look at the several uh, complications and contradictions that arise on the ground um, when we uh, stop thinking of the urban poor as a homogenous group or thinking of uh, politics in a unidimensional manner 
Um, but I was very taken by your careful documentation of the kinds of cultural idioms that constitute public demonstrations of resistance amongst the urban poor in Delhi. You actually spoke about uh, Dharnas and Rasta Rokos uh, briefly, but um, you're, in the book, you focus on dharnas, rastarokos, bukhartas, street theatres, and felicitation ceremonies, and that really underscored the um, uh, many creative and tenacious ways in which the urban poor mobilize in Delhi. So I would love it if you could perhaps take an ethnographic example or two and speak about um, what analytical affordances we as scholars um get when we take into account cultural idioms and performances in a study of urban politics yeah thanks thanks for that question um i think i think it is a it is very critical to foreground various uh speech acts uh, performances uh ceremonies and spectacles of resistance to understand urban politics because because these cultural idioms uh informing these tactics uh highlight the context specific modes of resistance demonstration so that so um you know, uh, theorizing urban politics should uh, pay attention to these uh, practices or uh, to these cultural idioms, right? So um, I, I foreground the idea that these protest demonstrations uh, contribute to the assertion of uh, numerical strength and bolster the claims for visibility and recognition in the city, the argument which runs through uh, my book. Um, the strategic display of numerical strength is an important component of these uh, uh, performances uh, as the signal, the magnitude of social suffering and the necessity of collective resistance, right? Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I really found it uh, fascinating that the poor organized to felicitate lawyers or, or politicians if they uh, help them in their struggles to get a house in the city. Uh, these events also included cultural performances, uh, garlanding of key actors, fiery speeches, and most importantly, uh, mobilization of sensations. Now, uh, felicitation or congratulatory ceremonies may not quite, uh, you know, qualify as protest tactics like other other resistance tactics. But mm -hmm. I argue that they significantly contribute to politics or to struggles for obtaining citizenship entitlements in 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 in, in the city or in Delhi. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, they provide the ideological impetus to organize offer an opportunity to build alliances and social relationships and contribute to the reinvention uh, and uh, reinvigoration of community solidarity, especially when the poor are resigned to fate. Right. So uh, and another example uh, 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 is the marches uh, and effigy burning, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that the poor carry out in Delhi. Mm -hmm. I really find it very creative and subversive uh, when the poor engage in carrying out uh, the symbolic funeral procession and the last rites of a dead or unresponsive government, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and often after these uh, uh, processions, they burn the effigy of the government because uh, the government, uh, because you know, the government was unresponsive to their claims and demands. So in this respect, I have tried to capture uh, the rhetorical, uh, linguistic expressions mm -hmm. and symbolic attacks that inform the struggle uh, uh, to be to be counted in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, thanks, Sanjay. A final sort of question then. Um, throughout the book, we are seeing, you know, we we, we, we we develop an understanding of the different sort of tactics and counter tactics through which the poor are, you know, trying to become visible to the state and that intention with um, the state's own attempts um, at controlling um, uh, the poor. Um, if we now reverse the gaze, what is, can you give us a sense of the imagination of the state 
um, that comes to take form in the minds and everyday practices of the poor. So how is it that the poor then see the state, imagine the state, what are the different forms of you know reciprocity, responsibility that they imagine the state to have towards them? Um, and um, the, the state that they think of, where does it exist beyond you know the government offices or the local politicians and middlemen that they are dealing with? So what is this state more in a sort of abstract, um, as an abstract entity? Right, right. That's a, that's a great question. It's a difficult question to answer as well. So, uh, oh, okay. So rather than viewing the state as unitary and, and as the dispenser of normative rights, I think, I think the poor have a constantly shifting conception of rights and social justice when they encounter the state. And this is how I have uh, formulated uh, my arguments right uh, so so i think uh, this perspective that that uh, uh, you know the state is very heterogeneous defines uh, the negotiation and improvisations of uh, uh, the poor right uh, I've, I've argued that the poor actively negotiate with the commissions and omissions of different state agencies at different points of time right um, and drawing on a vast body of literature i have uh, shown how the state agencies themselves are guided by contradictory logics and interests at the same time. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, the, the state government may wish to resettle a population, but the judiciary may give an antagonistic verdict. Or say uh, the landowning agency may dilly-dally in giving the required amount of money to meet the resettlement costs. So uh, the states are multifaceted and the technologies of statecraft uh, produce unanticipated and heterogeneous effects. Uh, I think this is the reason why the poor embed their struggles within various structures of the state, right? They either partake in or subvert the state practices uh, in ingenious ways. So their source of support is not a single state agency, uh, rather uh, they target, appeal, and supplicate to a multitude of state officials uh, in order to gain a foothold in the city. Uh, thank you very much, Sanjeev, for this answer, but also all your very comprehensive and detailed um, um, a descriptions of the politics of the poor that you describe in such a vivid manner in the book. Um, and thanks very much for taking our time to chat with Sneha and me. Um, but before before we let you go, uh, we'd love to hear about where you're headed next. So what is what is what does research? What is the next research project you're looking at? Um, you know what are new sites and themes that you're exploring. Um, so we'd love to we'd love to know more about what we will see from you in the future. Right. Okay. Uh, well, well, I'm I'm writing my uh, second book now. Uh, I have tentatively titled it uh, "The Plumbers of Delhi: Migration, Caste, Sociality, and Citizenship in an Occupational Community." You may, oh, wow. you may, you may, yeah, you may uh, uh, already know uh, this fact uh, that most of the plumbers in India uh, and its significant number in the Middle East originate from a particular district of the state North of Odisha in India. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, initially, I mean, uh, I'm laying out their entire history. In fact, they came to Burma and then later on they went to Delhi. Oh, that's a very intricate history. But uh, initially, most of the plumbers belonged to two intermediate castes, which exercised some sort of an occupational monopoly. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, the members of uh, Dalit communities took up this occupation. Uh, and in this light, my book will attempt to contribute to an understanding of the mechanisms of caste sociality in shaping migration histories, labor market uh, outcomes, community formations in the city, and rural-urban citizenship struggles, 
among communities of plumbers in my uh, next book. Incidentally, I'm I'm uh, doing some organizing work. We are trying to build an uh, build a union among plumbers now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and I'm also uh, revisiting the field site. So let's see how it goes. And finally, uh, I I must thank you uh, for having me. It was really uh, my pleasure to talk to you. You gave me an opportunity to um, highlight some of the main arguments in my book. Uh, I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. Sanjeev, this new project also sounds uh, so great and I can't wait to read the book. I'm already excited about your book. <laughs> and so, you know, really, and thanks uh, a lot for taking time out to chat with us. Um, I'm sure your book is going to resonate a lot with anyone interested in anything urban, but especially urban politics in India. And I wish you all the best with it. And I, it's, I'm, I can't wait to teach it and I can't wait to use it and learn from it in my own work. So um, thanks a lot again for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you so much.